0: We're in Luke chapter 11 now, Luke chapter 11, and if you were here last week, you heard the story of Mary and Martha, and how Jesus said Mary, she chose the good portion to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from the Master, with the understanding that she will eventually go and do But we need to know what to do and how to do and with what attitude. And that takes discipleship. That takes learning. And it's interesting that the first story that comes after Mary and Martha, once Luke has set us up with the importance of soaking in Jesus' teaching, the very next story is on The disciples asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. As if we needed a reminder of how important prayer is. But I think we do. We do need a reminder of how important prayer is. And the disciples tee it up for us and ask Jesus, please teach us how to pray. And the next ten chapters in Luke will... Luke records a lot of Jesus' teachings, his parables, and what a wonderful way to get it started. Teach us to pray. So we opened this morning reciting the Lord's Prayer, quite familiar to many of us. I grew up in the Lutheran tradition. It was something we recited every Sunday in church. If you grew up in a Catholic tradition, that was probably... Similar for you, and if you uh, dutifully went to confession once a week and confessed your sins to the priest, you may have been told to say a certain number of Our Fathers. And so we're familiar with the prayer, and I would say even unbelievers in our culture are somewhat familiar with this prayer. If people started reciting it, they might know the words and so, the problem with familiarity is what the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Um, it becomes rote. You could just say the prayer and not think about what the words mean. And so, we're actually going to take the next four Sundays and study the Lord's Prayer deeply. And we're going to start with this, uh, this question, why would the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray? Why would they ask this? They're, old, they're Jews. They've grown up their whole lives hearing prayers, knowing prayers. They probably pray the Shema daily, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And these commandments I give to you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and on and on The prayer goes, but maybe they just got into the habit of reciting the Shema without really thinking about what they were praying. Just like anything we memorize can become rote. We know that rabbis often taught their students prayers to memorize. This is recorded for us through history. We know they would definitely pray the Shema, like I just told you. And in this passage, it reads, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And so John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. And there's some indication here from this passage that there was a specific prayer that the disciples of John would pray. I wonder which disciple asked. We'll find out in heaven. Which disciple wanted to know how to pray? We don't have any indication, though, what the motive of their heart was. And so we have to use some sanctified imagination. Um. I think because Jesus just finished praying and they've been watching him for two years now. They've seen how much Jesus prays, how dependent on prayer he was, how different his prayers must have been than the prayers they were used to hearing. And they must have made a connection between the power of prayer and the things that Jesus was able to do. So I don't want to assign any wrong motives or any right motives to their question, because I know the human heart is filled with both. Yours is, and so is mine. I would imagine that on the one hand, they saw how precious prayer was to Jesus, And the good motives were to be like Jesus and we want to pray like our master. But I'm sure they were mixed with motives like I want to pray impressive prayers. I want to pray prayers that will unleash the kind of power Jesus has in my life. To glorify God, but also probably knowing human nature So I can impress other people. Knowing that our fallen hearts will always make ourselves a center of attention. It's fascinating to me that the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, is so God-focused. It is so different than the kinds of prayers we normally pray. It is so God-exalting and depending on God to determine for me even the things I should be asking for. Instead of jumping straight into my list of requests. And when that happens, then God becomes our cosmic vending machine. Right? Put in my dollar E4 and out comes whatever it was we asked for and then we get disappointed when the thing we asked for we don't get cuz i put in my money and i pushed e4 and i should get my m&ms or god becomes our cosmic santa claus or to really bring this into our world he becomes our amazon prime and if it's not at my doorstep by tomorrow i'm upset There's only one line in the Lord's prayer that even really smacks of a personal request. And that is, give us this day our daily bread. But even listen to how that is phrased. Whatever, Lord, you think I need to get through this day, please provide that. And... God knows better than we know what we need each day. And even in His grace, He gives us things that we would have never thought were the things we needed or wanted. I think we should be thankful that God doesn't give us everything we ask for. I think we would be miserable. We certainly wouldn't grow because nobody asks for trials. Our first prayer request is usually to immediately take whatever trial, and by trials I often mean uncomfortable, um, in the way of my plans, inconvenient. These are the things we find ourselves praying about and for. Take this away and take this away. Give me this and give me this. So it should be no surprise to us that God, who is so different than us, would reveal to us in his word a prayer that is so different than the way we pray. I think the pendulum has swung too far to the other side of Prayer. Let me explain. Probably 40, 50 years ago. I don't even need to go back that far because I'm not that old. Wait a minute. I'm right in between 40 and 50. Okay, so maybe going back that far. Um, these kinds of open-ended, free-flowing prayers that we hear in evangelicalism was not common. Uh, prayers were very private And they were often scripted. Who here grew up in a household where you prayed a scripted prayer of blessing over the meal? There you go. Like, bless us, O Lord, with these uh, gifts which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. Or come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. And may this food to us be blessed. Amen. Those were the kinds of prayers I heard growing up. They're good prayers, but like we said, when you say them over and over and over again, they begin to lose any meaning, just something you say before dinner. Um, maybe you prayed a quick prayer blessing at night. You know. um, now I lay me down to sleep, right, which is kind of a creepy prayer. <laughs> if I should die before I wake. I pray the Lord my soul to take. Look, if you're a believer in Christ, you don't need to pray that prayer every night. That that's a promise that He'll your soul to take. But the pendulum has swung the other way and, and now we're so free and open with our prayer that we don't even stop to think about how we should pray. We just start going. And that's a neat thing that people feel free and open to pray to God. But I think we need to bring the pendulum back to, now wait a minute, if Jesus specifically in his word taught us how to pray, we ought to follow his teaching. So for those of you who are afraid to pray and all you know are memorized prayers, hopefully by the end of this month, You'll, you'll move towards confidence in prayer. And for those of you who uh, just open your mouth and start babbling, we need to move you back towards a place where you need to uh, use an economy of words and think about the order in which you pray for things and let God show you the important things to pray for and maybe some of the things that fill your prayer time won't be as important anymore. In fact, I would argue that a lot of people pray only for the request so much that their prayer time is actually causing them to be anxious and they're worried and they're trying to pray for every single little thing that possibly could cross their mind and if I I forget something, I'm going to ruin someone's life. I didn't pray protection over these people today, and I forgot to pray for And you forget that God is sovereign, and the Lord's Prayer certainly, if anything, tells us how sovereign God is and frees us up to stop praying for all these little particulars. Not that there's anything wrong with some particulars, but you could literally be praying for hours and hours and hours on end, for things that you really don't need to be praying for. And it could just cause worry and anxiety or disappointment that doesn't seem like God is answering your prayers. Let's go to the next question. Is the, Lord, is the Lord's Prayer intended to be recited, or is it a model for prayer? Uh, there should be a question mark there. I hate finding typos in my notes. It, it bothers me. And the English teachers out there come and tell me afterwards. So, I see it. There should be a question mark there. I say the answer to this question is yes. You can recite it, and you can use it as a model for prayer. And you can actually recite it with one part of your brain, while another part is Using it as a model, God has made us with the amazing gift of being able to do what is called metacognition to think about your own thinking. It separates us from other animals. You know have you ever been in conversation with someone and your another part of your brain is thinking about something different? I get in trouble for doing that a lot. <laughs> But you can do it in a healthy way where you're reciting scripture you've memorized. And part of your brain can be turning that into a prayer request. And you know you don't need to vocalize it because God is omniscient and he knows our hearts. He can hear our unspoken prayers. But Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that when you are praying, do not use meaningless or vain repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So evidently there was a practice of publicly praying with many words in order to impress the people around them. And so Jesus says, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. There's one of those verses in scripture that if you stop and pause and think, your head might explode. (laughs) Wow. I'm asking God and he already knows what I'm going to ask before I ask and knows what I need before I even know I need it. And so the question is, then why am I praying? And some use this as an excuse to not pray. Well, look, if God already knows what he's going to do and God already knows what I need, why bother praying? Because Jesus said to pray. And you let the mystery of the faith remain a mystery in some real and meaningful way. Finite human beings have been created by God to commune with an infinite being who already knows the future that we do not. This is the only way we can communicate. We can't be infinite like God and know the future. And so in prayer, God condescends, he stoops to where he can Communicate with us in the same way that when you talk to a two-year-old, you need to get down on a knee and look them in the eye and use vocabulary that they understand. And if somebody was hearing impaired, you would have to find another way to communicate with them. So in the same way, we're like two-year-olds. That's humbling. We're like two-year-olds to God. It's probably not even a good analogy. The gap between us and God is, is even greater. And yet, because He loves us, and in His wisdom and in His mercy, He's made a way for us to communicate with Him through prayer. So even if we don't completely understand how it works, we can pray with confidence. Because it's been revealed to us and taught to us in Scripture that we should pray and that prayer matters Even if we don't completely understand how God uses prayer to do the things he's already decided to do. Now, I don't know how my cell phone works, but I use it every day with confidence. Um, Well, not always confidence. When I start texting, my kids make fun of me because I use my index finger. I can't figure out how to use my thumbs to... To text. But it doesn't stop me from communicating. And so, in the same way, just because you don't completely understand how prayer works doesn't mean you have to wait until you have it all figured out to pray. So, I don't want you, on the one hand, to be intimidated today and say, I'm going to hold off on my praying until I'm an expert on prayer. No. Pray without ceasing. Pray at all times. And yet, at the same time, we should learn how to pray in ways that are more God-honoring and more effective. So I would say the Lord's Prayer, then, is not only the model prayer, it's also a model for prayer. There's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer as long as you guard against vain repetition. Now, if I say ten of these, then I'll be extra holy today. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. If we have any visiting Catholics, I don't mean to offend. I mean to teach biblical truth. Saying ten Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys There's no scriptural teaching that that will make you holy. In fact, it could have the opposite effect by lulling you into believing that praying those prayers is what's required of you instead of actual repentance. Now, if that's what was intended by the priest saying, I want you to pray ten our fathers that you need to pause and think about the words you're praying and reset your heart and repent, then saying the Lord's Prayer could be a good thing. But nothing mystical happens when you say 10 of them or 20 of them or 30 of them. If that were the case, you should just say it all day long. Also, the Bible doesn't record any examples of the disciples actually repeating this prayer. And so, I think we can take from that, and most commentators agree, that Jesus intended for the Lord's Prayer to be a model of prayer. We have plenty of prayers recorded in the New Testament. We never see the apostles repeating the words of the Lord's Prayer. So, Let's consider this then as a model for prayer. And like I said, you could, you could if you have the Lord's Prayer memorized, when you go to pray, you could be saying and reciting the Lord's Prayer, but at the same time then converting each verse into your prayer requests. You could say, Our Father who art in heaven, and then pause and say, Yes, Lord, you dwell high above. You are high and lifted up. There is a whole nother realm besides this realm. The earth is your footstool. You know, all these scriptural teachings can come to mind and you see how the Lord's Prayer can inform the structure of your prayers. Instead of just jumping right into, God, I really need a new job. I I won't be happy until I get a new job. And then you just stop the prayer there, and then you're unhappy all day because you have just trained your heart to hate your job. Instead of being thankful that the Lord has provided you with gainful employment and that that is your opportunity to be a witness in that dark place. And maybe, Lord, if it be your will that you might provide a job where I'm finding more satisfaction and fulfillment, and maybe I'm surrounded by... See how that's a much different prayer than, you know, I hate my job, give me a new one. What that does to your heart, it it makes all the difference. I love the way John MacArthur in his commentary on Luke kind of helps us see how the Lord's Prayer kind of teaches and resets our whole idea about prayer. And he's kind of a master at putting these lists together, especially when he starts alliterating them. You know, getting all the words to start with the same letter, and um, and so he's got three different lists here, and I wanted to share them with you. First, he says the Lord's prayer models the proper relationship with God. And we forget that God is God, and we're not. We get it backwards. And so prayer is a chance to reset our hearts on who we really are and who God really is. And if, it's, if that's all we accomplished each morning in prayer, that would make a world of difference in our lives and in this world. And so each line of the Lord's Prayer helps us remember God's place and our place. He's Father, we're Child. He's the Holy One, we're the Worshipers. He's the ruler, we're the subjects. And don't we need a reminder of that? I loved a story in R.C. Sproul's book on the Lord's Supper where he said a friend from England came over to do some preaching at a conference. And R.C. took him on a tour of Philadelphia. So much of our nation's history starts in Philadelphia. And his friend became um, suddenly overwhelmed with some anxiety. And he said, well, what's the matter, brother? And he said, how do I preach about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to a people who for 200 years have been celebrating the fact that they have no king over them? And that's true. We're Americans. There's no king. I'm my own man. I'm the Keeper of my castle, I'm the Lord of my manor, I am sovereign over my soul, don't tread on me, rugged individualism, John Wayne, these are our heroes, especially out here in the West. And the Lord's Prayer helps us remember, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That there is this kingdom that I'm a part of. This cosmic kingdom. And there's a king. And he is ruling and reigning even now. The Lord's Prayer reminds us who is the creator and who's the creature. I take great pride in providing for my family, but I need to remember where all of that provision comes from. God can cut that off in an instant to teach a lesson. It reminds me that He's the Savior and I'm the sinner. And that I've been forgiven an unpayable debt so I should turn around and be able to forgive others of much lesser things. And that God is the guide and I'm the pilgrim completely lost without him, thinking I can navigate this world. But the Lord's Prayer teaches me that if it were up to me to be my own guide, I would guide myself into trouble day in and day out. I would also not lead myself into places God does leave me for a purpose. I would lead myself to all the easy places in life. And becoming like Jesus doesn't happen on those roads. Secondly, uh, MacArthur had another list here. The Lord's Prayer reveals the proper attitude towards God. I'm always preaching on the heart. You know how important that is to me? It's one of the key concepts in all of God's Word is that it's the heart that matters. And so prayer changes my heart. Doesn't change God's heart. His heart doesn't need changing. Changes my heart. It realigns my heart with God's heart. Have you ever gone into prayer um, anxious, in a hurry? And if you really spent time praying the way we ought, you come out on the other side at peace. And maybe with a completely different agenda that day and whatever was bothering you, you're even ashamed that it was bothering you in the first place. Maybe you were waiting to go give somebody a piece of your mind. And after prayer, they say, so what do you want to meet about? Ah, Nothing. <laughs> Wasn't as big a deal as I thought. And so the Lord's prayer starts with the word our, because we need to be unselfish. The man's chief problem is he thinks he's all there is. And we need to be reminded that there is a family of God. There is a body of Christ. We're one of millions upon millions of redeemed. We're, we're not as special as we like to think. And yet, at the same time, we are special because the next word in the prayer is Father. So it creates that healthy tension of I'm not the bee's knees, but I'm a son of the living God by adoption. Wow. It also gives me a reverent heart. This is another area where I believe evangelicalism has swung the pendulum too far to be a little bit too chummy with God. And maybe 40, 50 years ago, people were afraid of God, that he was aloof, and approaching him in prayer at all was just not something that you did, very high church kind of experiences, never singing, what a friend we have in Jesus, because calling God friend seems uh, sacrilegious. And yet, in our modern culture, people throw around God's name as if uh, he's your schoolmate, or he's your neighbor next door, instead of Looking at examples in the Bible of anyone who's ever come anywhere close to the throne of God. Isaiah and Isaiah 6. Woe is me, I am undone. Everyone falling on their face in front of God. Angels round the clock singing the praises of God and hiding their face with their wings out of reverence. And so the Lord's Prayer helps remind me who it is that I'm talking to. So I'm not presumptuous in my prayers. Lord's Prayer teaches loyalty. Not a lot of loyalty in our culture anymore. People change jobs, change neighborhoods, change churches, change spouses way too easily. as if it's our kingdom. And we pray, thy kingdom come. Your kingdom. How is your kingdom supposed to work? Lord, show me in your word how your kingdom is supposed to work and help me to trust that that's the kind of kingdom I'm going to find happiness living in. Show me how I can model thy kingdom in this world. It teaches submissiveness, Also not a very popular sentiment in our culture. To willingly place yourself under another's leadership. Teaches me dependence and certainly penitence and humility. And you look at this list and you say, boy, every word on this list is sorely lacking from our culture, is it not? What would our world be like with a healthy injection of unselfishness intimacy, reverence for God, loyalty, submissiveness, dependence, penitence, and humility. Are the prayers you pray filled with these sentiments, with these virtues? If not, there's some correction to be made in your prayer life. The final list he provided is one of his patented, alliterated lists. The Lord's prayer models the proper preeminence of God. And these are all P words, so if you're in the front row, you may get damp, right? It models His paternity, our Father, His priority. How would it be Thy name, His program, Thy kingdom come, His provision? You need to give us our daily bread. We have no bread without you. His pardon, forgive us our sins, and His protection, lead us not into temptation. There's not a lot of me in this prayer. A whole lot of God. This is a God-centered prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer is not the only model for prayer. I don't want you leaving today saying, I can only pray exactly the way the Lord's Prayer teaches Another popular model that they use in Bible Study Fellowship and BSF and other places is the ACTS model, A-C-T-S. Spells out a book of the Bible. Easy to remember. It's an acronym for adoration. Start your prayer life adoring God, exalting God, magnifying His name. Then move on to confession. Confession. Of sin. And then thanksgiving. First and foremost, thanking him for his forgiveness. And then move on at the end to supplication, which is a fancy word for prayer request. But A C T R doesn't spell anything. So, A C T S, supplication. R.C. Sproul notes that most of us start our prayers with supplication and then don't move much beyond that, which changes the whole acronym to SCAT, which I thought was very clever, and then second-guessed myself last night about 2 in the morning. Should I leave that in my notes? And then God brought to mind that Paul calls all of his good works excrement. And so there's biblical precedence for using a very um, visual and aromatic illustration. <laughs> that when our hearts are in the wrong place, um, we need to properly label those things so that we make the change. So let's stay away from prayers that are laundry lists of Please give me this, and please do this, and please change this. And let's start with adoration and confession of sin and thanksgiving. And maybe by the time you get to supplication, the things that you thought you were going to ask for, maybe you'll have a completely different mindset. Or maybe you'll ask for them in a completely different way with humility and trust. And you'll say, if you think this would be good for me, Lord if it be your will. I think it would be good for me. <laughs> but I trust that you know better than I do what would be good for me. Now keep in mind, too, that we don't want to get legalistic about this. If 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 you don't hit each letter every time, it's not like God's going to reject your prayer. And if you're driving down 58 and you see a car accident and you want to pray that God... Uh, rescue this person, and you go, well, I got to start with adoration, and then confession, and then thanks, right? So, obviously, sometimes jumping right into supplication is what the moment calls for. Another prayer model we've been promoting in the last year is praying through scripture, and we highly recommend the book Praying the Bible by Donald S. Whitney no relation. I don't receive royalties if you purchase the book. Although I said in first service, maybe I should write a book and just use my last name and um, ride the coattails here. Uh, He also has written a great book on spiritual disciplines. He's a professor at Southern Seminary. And this is a short book that just teaches you how to read a portion of Scripture and then pray a prayer based on that portion of Scripture. And how could you go wrong letting the Scripture tell you what and how to pray? In fact, that's what using the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer is. You're praying Scripture. It is Scripture. In fact, the Lord's Prayer is recorded in three different places in Scripture. So I recommend uh, that book. It'll especially help you to pray through the Psalms, which are prayers set to music, or poetic prayers. And you will find that if you pray through Scripture, your prayer life will be much different. The Bible has much different priorities about what to bring to the throne room of God than what comes to us naturally. We get so fixated on our daily concerns. And praying scripture will help you rise above the minutia of life and give you peace and freedom and trust in amazing ways. I am preaching to the choir here. If you're finding yourself lately to be distant from God and concerned like Martha about a great many things, check your prayer life. Oh, well, yeah, I know I need to pray, but what else? What do you mean, what else? Start with prayer, and then during the prayer, God may show you things you need to change in your life, and then pray about those changes, and then go do those changes, and while you're in the midst of those changes, pray. Paul says what? To pray... Without ceasing. You're like, well, Paul, how am I going to get anything done? Obviously, you have to leave the prayer closet. But you can pray as you live your daily life, and you should. So let's just look at the, the, the very beginning of the prayer today. This Our Father, and let me point out three truths to you just in those two words, Our Father. Number one, prayer is both personal and corporate. Prayer is both personal and corporate. It's something we do alone, and it's something we do together. And Jesus commanded us to pray in a private place in the Sermon on the Mount. And then when he's asked, how should we pray, He starts his model prayer with the first person plural pronoun, our. Isn't that wonderful? When we go to pray, immediately God wants us to think corporately. We are a body of Christ. This is the fellowship of the saints. We care for one another. We consider others more important than ourselves, Philippians. We come with all of our personal needs, and Jesus wants us to start with, what about the needs of others? Have you discovered in life that sometimes those personal needs that you thought were so important melt away when you begin to serve and help and meet other people's needs. If you help others just with the daily necessities of life, then that new whatever you wanted for the house is just not so important anymore. When you're tempted to complain and you reach out and help others who have some real trials going on in their life, what you thought was a trial turns into a different trial. Turns into the trial of you realize you were just struggling with discontentment. And the thing you thought you needed to be happy, you realize you don't. And so Jesus teaches us to be others-focused in our prayer by starting the prayer with our. Yet, at the same time, it starts with the most personal and intimate way you could Address God with the word Father. Now, I know for some of you, you did not have a great relationship with your Father, and this word might be a stumbling block for you. But let this be an opportunity for Jesus to teach you that whatever your relationship with your Father was like or is like, it's nothing like what your Heavenly Father is. He is loves you perfectly. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will always discipline you with love. He is not raising you because God somehow wants to be impressive to his friends. And so you're not constantly trying to hear from God that he's proud of you. All these cliches we talk about in culture about the relationship with our fathers. God as father, he is the perfect father. He is the father all fathers should emulate. And we all come up short. So be careful not to look at your earthly relationship with your father and then say, well, that's what my heavenly father must be like. Unless there's some good qualities between you and your earthly father, good godly qualities, then you can use that as a springboard to say, my earthly father is this loving. How much more loving is my heavenly father? If my earthly father knows how to give good gifts, how much more does my heavenly father know how to give good gifts? If I feel safe when I'm around my earthly daddy, how much safer do I feel around the creator of the universe? And so prayer is both personal and corporate. There are times when it's appropriate to pray corporately. Bible studies and here at church. And so when Jesus says, go to your prayer closet and pray alone, he's not saying don't pray corporately. He was saying, don't be like the people who get up in front of everyone and only pray corporately to show off and impress people. And yet there are times when individual prayer is also needed. Of course, it's all about the heart. What is your motive for praying? You can say the right words and I can give you the right words to say and if your heart's in the wrong place then it's not a prayer that's pleasing to God. Right? When you tell your children say you're sorry. Sorry. Right word. Wrong heart. Say thank you. Uh, Gee, thanks. Right word. Wrong heart. You could... Find some really beautifully written prayers. I love the book, The Valley of Vision. It's a list of Puritan prayers. Boy, those guys pray like no one else, right? In fact, they had a saying, pray like it all depends on you, on God. And I'm sorry, pray like it all depends on God, but work like it all depends on you. It was this great way of reminding them, work hard as a Christian, but remember, you're not going to accomplish anything unless God is in it. And it held that tension together. But as beautifully as those prayers are written, if if you're saying them with your heart in the wrong place, then it's no longer a beautiful prayer. And some of the most simplest prayers, because someone's heart's in the right place, has got to be such a pleasing aroma to God. The simple prayers we hear our children pray. Oh. So precious, so simple, so filled with with faith. I love hearing the little children pray. If you teach Sunday school, and that's as far as you get is prayers, you've done your job for the day. If we teach our kids to pray, you're teaching them that there's a God in heaven, that he hears us, that he cares for us, that he has the power to do something, and that he wants to do something. So whatever Bible lesson you were going to teach that day, it was probably going to touch on one of those things. So be careful not to skip over the prayer time as if, well, we got to get the prayers out of the way. Now let's, let's get into the real lesson. And I'm guilty of that all the time because I'm a teacher and I want to get to the lesson. You know, like prayer requests ate up all the good stuff. Secondly, prayer is exclusive. Prayer is exclusive. Many commentators in, in MacArthur and Sproul really hit hard on this point because theological liberalism came in, and it was really a historian named Adolf von Harnack who taught about the universal fatherhood of God. And this spread like wildfire through evangelicalism, that God is father to everyone, even people in other religions. And if there's a universal fatherhood of God, then that means there's a universal brotherhood. And you see this language in our culture the universal brotherhood of mankind, that everybody's my brother. But two lessons ago, Jesus taught that everybody is my neighbor. That is different than everybody is my brother. Only in and through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ can people call God Father. You say, well, you sure about that? Yes, Jesus told the Pharisees, you don't know me because you don't know the Father. Your Father is the devil. In the sense that God has created every living thing, God is Father in that sense, but relationally only believers can call God Father. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of privilege to be able to call God Father. Only through the Son who has the right to call God Father because it is His Father do we have the right to pray our Father. We should love everyone as our neighbor, but we especially love fellow believers as brothers and sisters in Christ, and like in any family, that means that um, sometimes some of our harshest fights are with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I've had some drag-out battles with my brother and sister over the years because I care about them more than people outside my family. Ah. Eh. And so people often wonder, how come there's so much fighting inside of Christianity? Because we're a family. (laughs) It shouldn't be that way, but we still have a residual sin nature. And we care about one another in very passionate ways. And so our disagreements get very passionate as well. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to love our enemies. But we love our brothers and sisters in Christ In a special way. They're co heirs. Thirdly, our Father tells us that prayer is very intimate. Very intimate. This isn't just any conversation. God could have used he had so many choices of titles to use when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And think about this. He chooses the title Father. It's, you're Yes, you're in the throne room of the King of kings, Lord of lords. You should be prostrate before the Lord in your heart. You should be humble. You shouldn't be presumptuous. And at the same time, you, you're curling up in his arms on his knee, and there's no safer place in the universe than with your daddy. And the Bible even uses a term of endearment that we can call Father Abba. It would be a term reserved only for a child and, and his parent. This is new. The Old Testament speaks of God as the Father of Israel, but there are no prayers in the Old Testament that refer to God as our Father. In fact, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders thought it was absolutely blasphemous for Jesus to refer to God as Father and to teach his disciples. Oh, it was what they wanted to kill him for. Because calling himself the Son of God meant he was making himself equal in essence with God. Equal in essence with God. God the Father and God the Son are separate persons, but they're equal in essence. John five seventeen. "...but he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working." For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, Jesus deciding what could be done on the Sabbath, and then said, He's Lord of the Sabbath, but also he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is truly equal with God in essence and in divinity and in majesty, and in authority. Now, when we call God Father, that doesn't make us equal with the Father. We're identifying with the Son, and positionally, we're adopted by God into His family so that we can rightfully call Him Father. We're still not equal with Him, but we are righteous in Christ, so we are like God in that sense. And God has taken up dwelling inside of us by His Spirit. And that gives us a sort of equality with God in that sense. We're worthy in Christ to be in heaven. And the Bible says we will even judge angels. Wow. It's an exalted position to be a believer. We're co-heirs with Christ. We'll reign with Christ. Obviously, he'll be reigning above us, but we're reigning with him at the same time. What that actually ends up looking like, we'll trust God. It'll be wonderful. I don't think we'll have any problem knowing who's really in charge and who needs to be worshipped. And yet, at the same time, the Bible clearly teaches we're co-heirs with Christ and we can call God our Father. Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's that that daddy thought. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you're trying to get to God by your good works, you'll never be adopted into his family. You're a slave. But through faith in Christ and his good works on the cross, you are adopted into the family. you have all the rights and privileges of a biological child. I mentioned in first service that those who adopt their children don 't treat them any differently than their biological children i didn 't know for months after coming here that Nathan was adopted until he told me. He just assumes everyone knows. And a bunch of you are now hearing for the first time. But Dave and Sandy Heiner don't treat Nathan any differently than they do their other children. And that's the relationship we have with the God of the universe. We're not second-class children. We're adopted sons and daughters. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is a down payment. It's like proof of, It's the stamp on our adoption papers that says this is done and final. He is your forever father and no one can pluck you out of the father's hand, Jesus says. And there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can boldly approach the throne of grace because of our adoption. We are finishing on a high note. We are co-heirs with Christ. And Paul says in Romans 8, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, meaning don't go back to works. It's not like earthly parents where you're like, Oh, they're, you know, I don't feel like they love me again. I need to do something special. I need to get straight A's. I need to win the tournament so my papa will be proud of me you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, which we cry out, Abba, Fathers, there's nothing more or less you could do to change your position. You are a forever son or daughter of God through faith in Christ. If you earned it, you could lose it. Jesus earned it for you. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. I'm going to leave it on that note because there's that word suffering with Him that will radically change your prayer life. We, most of our prayers... Ninety percent, I would say, of evangelical prayer is to make our suffering go away. But it says we are heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him. If we're going to be exalted with Christ in our glorification, then we should expect that we are going to endure suffering like Christ endured suffering only it will never be as difficult as the suffering he endured on the cross praise god praise god so in your prayer time go to abba father daddy and trust that whatever suffering is going on in your life is not without a purpose just as the son suffered before he was exalted so well His adopted sons and daughters suffer before we are exalted in our glorified bodies in heaven. Abba, Father, thank you for adopting us into your forever family through Jesus' work on the cross. How amazing that you would want such an intimate relationship with sinners like us. Help us to see this lofty position for what it is and cherish it. May it shape the way we think and the way we live, the way we speak, and the way we pray. To your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen.